For sure. So hi, everyone. Good afternoon. My name is Clay Garner. I'm a public interest hacker, for lack of better words. I was the former chief innovation officer to the mayor of San Jose, which if you can believe it, is the 10th largest city in America. Um, worked on everything from community Wi-Fi build-outs to trying to think about the future of transportation, how we're going to integrate things like autonomous vehicles, public safety and tech. So really exciting time, especially given the pandemic, like we have to do pretty much all of the digitization work that had been you know, planned for many years in the span of just a few weeks and months. So that was a very exciting time to be at City Hall. Uh, before that was at Google, uh, studying in China, looking out for private partnerships, as a Stephen Schwartzman scholar. And I just had to say that I have so many like uh, agreements with Ed on his, on his points. Um, what excites me, I think AI, you know, as a young person in the Bay Area, is just a renaissance right now in San Francisco. There's just no other place on earth with the co-location of the talents and the companies that you see there. I mean, one of my classmates from school is the product manager on Dolly, and she's 26 years old. And you just see that across the board. People are starting companies and building these products that are basically transforming how we interact with tech. So that's super exciting. As a local politics guy, I mean, it's exciting that that's happening here. I think, you know, it depends to be seen whether the government can actually figure out how to avoid, leverage this excitement and renaissance to avoid the, what some analysts describe as a doom loop scenario, which seems very likely, I think, in some parts of this area. Um, you know, to Ed's point, like, it's not just the corporate cultural model that will suffer from work from home, but it's the whole the whole system is just collapsing. We built a society around these tech commuter campuses. And if you know people don't show up to work, then we don't have the small business impact. We don't have transit revenue. I mean, our transit systems here are among the most reliant in the United States on fare collection. It's like 70% for BART prior to the pandemic. So if it's only 40% of you know, pre-pandemic ridership and that doesn't increase, you, what are we going to do about our transit? Because federal funding is only going to last till 2025. So our whole system has to be dynamically updated to meet like the reality of this work from home environment or whatever purpose that may serve. Um, so I think that's a huge challenge. I think you know you can do a startup now with way less people. I mean, Meta is firing tons of recruiters and marketers, and these people that had good jobs that lived here got more jobs. And what do you do if you're a marketing person now? I mean, that is a white collar job that was supposed to be a path to middle class or even upper middle class. I mean, if you use ChatGPT or use any of these tools like Canva, it's pretty hard to believe that we're going to need as many people to do these tasks. And so a lot of people say, well, with productivity gains, there's always just some kind of you know alternate pool of labor that emerges and there's new opportunities. But I think it's hard to see that. I mean, maybe you've been following AutoGPT and the agents uh, emerging for how basically AI systems can interact with each other. So where do people fit into this mix? I don't think anyone's really thinking about that, and that's very scary. Yeah, uh, I'm Anurag Chandra. Uh, I wear two hats. I think right now he's got, uh, Mark has me wearing my LP hat, um, but I've been a GP for the last 20 years in Silicon Valley and across a few venture firms, about at least two and a half billion under management, might be a little higher than that. Um, and uh, I've been around to see the NASDAQ bubble burst. I've seen the great financial crisis and what we're going through now. And every time I hear someone like Ed talk, I think maybe I will stay in Silicon Valley because there are a lot of 
days where I get sick of how much since the great financial crisis, this place has become the worst of New York and Los Angeles. It's the transactional nature of New York and it's the me, 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 I want to be famous of Hollywood. But then maybe once or twice a week, like real entrepreneurs, which is the old school entrepreneurs, just two geeks who actually have a product that they think will solve a problem and they want to fit that product into this white space and they just don't know exactly how they show up. And I think, okay, I'm going to live here a little bit longer because it's hard to separate the signal from the noise. It's a lot of MBAs and a lot of uh, soft skilled people starting companies uh, without a real passion for a product. And um, I think what concerns me the most about Silicon Valley is this thing that excites me. What concerns me is that we're going to continue to be a destination for tourists. Um, they leave when this happens right now. Um, but then um, there's enough critical mass here and the Valley still has a lot of core strengths. I'll be a little shameless, but there is no one-two punch like in Stanford anywhere in the world. Um, no offense to Harvard and MIT, but uh, it's a significant head and shoulder less in terms of breaking glass, dynamism, and the entrepreneurship. Um, I think the venture capitalists like living here. It's a pretty good quality of life. So I don't see the capital uh, evaporating anytime soon. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm long-term optimistic because I've been through two of these before. Uh, the Valley seems to find its way. Um, I do think that right now AI is full of promise, but it's one of five platform technologies that I think can be as big as the internet was in terms of generating wealth. Um, interesting to see that you can do something in space tech. I think it's uh, underrepresented. As what are the other four? Oh, I have to remember them now. That that, so space tech, I don't even have uh, AI. I, I, AI is there, but it's not one of mine. Autonomy, um, computational biology, which my father who was a medical school professor at NYU to a chagrin. Neither of his kids know anything about biology. <laughs> uh, what else do I have on there? I'm still on blockchain. I my Younger son owns crypto. He thought he was so such a genius in high school. And I think he's learned a valuable lesson about <laughs> investing. Um, but I, I am bullish on blockchain. I've seen some really interesting applications in the fintech world. Um, just back office stuff, just rationalizing all of the uh, transactions that companies make, intercompany transactions, the way you balance your your uh, balance sheets with your subsidiaries, tokenizing all of that is, is, is really powerful. And it's massive cost savings. Um, so how many am I up to? But do you think the Valley has an edge on all, all five? Um, uh, yeah. I mean, look, anything life sciences, San Diego and Boston are, are highly relevant. Um, but I think, yeah, they, either an edge or competitive in, in all of them is what I would say. Um, yeah, so, so I'm still, you know, still bullish. Uh, but I do think... Um, but the one other thing that worries me is a very little secret. VCs don't make money for their investors. They don't make money that matters for their investors. And I don't know when the LPs are actually going to hundred percent trigger this out. Having said that we have an allocation at San Jose and venture, and I'm committed to that allocation. It's we, we make that decision as trustees. I chair the investment committee. I don't get to do it by myself. Um, it's by consensus and the CIO is long a venture because innovation is one of the two or three themes where I think you can get alpha over the next 10 or 15 years. It's figuring out how to play innovation. Venture is a subset of innovation. Um, we think because we're in San Jose and because we have trustees like me and a few others who have been 
practitioners that we might be able to do a better job of picking the right type of venture funds, but they've gotten way too big. Um, they all mark their portfolios based on marked up valuations, right? I'm a lawyer too, so uh, only 11 months, hated every minute of it, round peg in a square hole. And uh, I, um, I had to learn corporate finance on my own. A buddy of mine at HBS told me the gospel textbook. It's on my bookshelf still, probably five uh, editions old. I thought IRRs were calculations of cash flow. When you look at venture distributions, you don't start to see returns until year seven or eight, but you don't really see the bulk of the cash till years 10 through 16. And if you're going to tell me two to three X, which is what every firm advertises is, oh, I can do, get you two or three X in 16 years, in 15 years, it's a poor IRR. I'm better off investing in tech in the public markets. Okay. So, so I'm wearing my I'm wearing my LP hat right now. Yeah. Uh, my GP friends hate when I do that. When I take it off and I'm a GP, I can tell you why I'll make you money. <laughs> but I'll never work at a billion dollar plus venture fund. So, so you, how do you segue to that? He's doing it the right way. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> Uh, um, I, I think Anwar uh, has said an, an important point about venture as an asset class. Uh, I believe that uh, we are as an asset class uh, in the middle of a uh, growing up or coming of age, uh, both GPs as well as the LPs and investors, because it is an asset class that behaves like nothing else out there, certainly not like public equities, not like credit not like a structured products or anything else. Uh, it is one that you have to obviously wait for 10 years and uh, you have to be lucky to have that big win at the end of it. And if you don't have that big win, you will get mediocre results from the best firms and certainly poor results from not so good firms. Uh, and I, but I, I think that's part of the entire process that we're going through. I mean, you've noticed that uh, Maybe except Ron Rock, most of us up, up to now, I haven't spoken yet, have been a little bit defensive. We're trying to say, hey, things aren't that bad. Uh, so that actually defines the mood in Silicon Valley. So let's just accept it, that we are under a microscope. Um, we are feeling heat that Silicon Valley is not quite leading yet. And I think it's a confluence of several factors in the past five years. COVID can't be underestimated. And I think Clay put it really well in terms of the impact that it has had on campuses and, and in terms of impact it has on corporate culture. Uh, and it had the biggest impact, I think, among major cities in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Even after the opening, I remember I visited a friend in Boston and uh, that was about two years ago, almost one and a half years ago. And downtown was kind of humming, coming together. At that time, San Francisco was still a ghost town. So it really had much deeper impact here for some reason. Uh, second, along with that came um, the, the correction in the capital markets that obviously hit us very, very hard because we have very highly valued companies, both public and private. So it kind of impacts uh, both uh, the employees, uh, compensations, their stock uh, holdings, as well as uh, how the LPs and GPs see the potential value coming here. So it kind of put everything on a damper. Uh, and I would say third is just 
in terms of technology cycles, we have been in the middle of a cycle. If you think about it over the past five years, we really haven't had a consequential company coming out of Silicon Valley. Maybe the last one was Databricks and Snowflakes. But after that, we haven't had anything. The most consequential company in, in the tech world today came from China and it's TikTok that's changing the world. So uh, we're trying to kind of figure out what's next. And I think that AI and certainly this packaging within chat GPT part of AI couldn't come in a better place because in some ways it would be the savior. It is giving everyone new energy and it's giving real tools. The, the risk and the danger from my view is that it is also overhyped. If you talk to people who are in the know and if you talk to uh, real AI experts, they say that this is not a revolution, it's an evolution. It has been happening. We have been using AI for the past 10, certainly five years very effectively. Uh, at best, this was an inflection point, but it was one that was packaged in a way that would grab attention and grab the awe of people and get 100 million people to use it uh, within a few months. That's great, and I think it does have great potential, but it does risk the fact that many companies will come and attach a an AI or a chat GPT to the end of their names and try to raise twice as much as what they need at four times the valuation that they, they deserve, and we're already seeing that. So, But, you know, this is a game we play here. We go fast, we hit the ball, and then we kind of say, okay, what was that that hit us? And then we kind of go back and try to reflect and try to... But I, I do think AI as a new set of tools is very important. If uh, Andreessen says software eats the world, I think I would say AI is eating the software and it's going to generate new software. But just wait for it. Don't expect the world to change in the next year just because of chat GPT. So keep asking questions, but our modus operandi is interact. So comments, questions? Mike, so we actually see a lot of companies in the Valley now. Can you just announce who you are? And I'm Eugene Malvaski, partner at One Way Ventures. Uh, and now the Silicon Valley is changing again, where work from home is starting to be more limited. Google, Apple just announced, uh, and pretty much every big corporation is saying, that's it, we're going back to hybrid workplace that are basically making people go to the office three to four times a week. And, uh, so it's going back to the to where it started to some extent. Yes, we're most likely going to have not five days a week in the office, but I don't think we're going to keep working from home, at least the companies. And the most innovation, if you see in companies this happening, are the people who said, you know, work from home was great, but we're actually more effective with the office. Because we can actually cre create products faster, iterate faster, create new features faster when everybody's in the same place. So, so just, just a comment. Because we, we talked about you know, the university, the, the assets that this valley has, and the largest of it is the universities we have. We have, we have Berkeley, we have Stanford, we also have Santa Clara, we have San Jose State. We realize the most, the, the, the largest number of, of engineers at Apple come from San Jose State. The same thing is true of Google, and it's something just to recognize that. Yeah, you've got the you know the, the creative. There are creative people come out of San Jose. I'm a San Jose grad myself. Another one of creatives is another question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know there are creative people who come out of San Jose State. But you know in terms of getting your, your <coughs> product managers, business managers, all those kinds of people, the bulk come from a public university, and 
the, the, the challenge is getting the state and philanthropy to realize that because public universities no longer supported like they were when I went to San Jose State. It was $57 a semester. Now it's 7000 a year, so which is well ahead of inflation, not counting the cost of living. But I think the, the, the philanthropic and state support for public universities, not only San Jose State, but you've got East Bay, you've got uh, in San Francisco State, you've got uh, yeah, all the UC system. Need, need financial support from philanthropy and from the state. And with people running around bad-mouthing uh, university education, it seems to be Jordan Wills' uh, column today was basically saying, who needs a bachelor's degree? Um, is doesn't help. But anyway, I think that's an asset class to be undervalued in the valley for why this, why we're so successful in starting with Lockheed moving here in the space in 1959. They moved here because Berkeley and because of San Jose State and because of Stanford. Why in office water cooler? I mean, on the return to work piece, like there was an interesting battle at the city or in the mayor's office between, I think, a lot of the Gen Zers and you know, some of the older staffers because we're looking at the data and like we accomplished all of our climate goals basically during the pandemic. You know, like we had just people off the roads. I mean, like all of the climate goals China. investing in, you know, and it's like young people are like, well, how can we go back? Because you're telling us that, you know, whether it, it's more effective or not, but because we have to be around the water. Like that, that was, and I don't know to what extent that will influence all these companies that are being created now, but is there really that same desire? Possibly. I mean, I do think in-person is a lot more effective for teams, but the climate goals that people purport to have and that people are spending a lot of money on can be accomplished very easily by remote work. So it's kind of a giant contradiction. But it's not just working together with others in the same office. It's actually being out there. We used to have an office on university, near University Avenue in Palo Alto, and we paid a little bit more, but I actually wanted to have an office there. And we shared with other uh, smaller VCs. We actually hosted some Stanford startups, gave them some space. But one reason that I like to be there is because when I would walk down University Avenue, I would see that CFO I knew from Google. I would see the other uh, person who just uh, left Palantir. I was here to chat with people talking about it. I mean, I know this is going to sound weird and stupid maybe, but it was almost like it was in the air. And I would sometimes even take a walk during lunchtime and just go around several blocks and clear my thoughts if I'm thinking about a new investment or something else. So I, I think for Silicon Valley, you ask if uh, Silicon Valley has an advantage in these things. It's not the only place that we will have innovation from. And I think it, we will see more of what we have seen from New York, Boston, London, Berlin, certainly China and India. Uh, but it, Silicon Valley certainly has the university advantage. It does have the people, there are so many technical and different uh, people here, but also it has huge companies that give tremendous number of people as their alums to start new companies. This was a factor for LA. I remember there was a discussion about how do we build something like Silicon Valley? And they didn't quite have the critical mass of companies like Google and Facebook and Yahoo at that time to create it. And I would add a fourth factor, which is some competitive culture that's out here. 
if, if when I go down to Southern California and have friends there, you know, I'm Persian. I, I do have every Persian has a cousin in Southern California. <laughs> so when I when you go there, actually, I've been around the world. You have a Persian cousin everywhere. <laughs> when you go there, it's just more laid back. I mean, I, I don't mean to put it in a negative way, but there is something about the culture that's hard to recreate. You can recreate great universities, you can have great companies, but the culture is harder to recreate. Can I just pick up on? So there's another lever, which is we are on Entrepreneur 4.0 in Silicon Valley. We have a representative 1.0, and shame on us for not pointing that out earlier. Yeah. There is a there is so much knowledge transfer at breakfast, and so many 1.0 and 2.0 founders who spend their. You want to talk about philanthropy? The number of founders I know who just meet with young entrepreneurs just to pay it forward. That does not happen in Los Angeles. That does not happen in Miami. That does not happen. Yeah. In New York, and I'm going to pick on Miami for a second because when I was at my first venture, <laughs> I was at my first venture fund, and I, I I wanted to bring a deal from Florida to the partnership, and my partner in Boston said, "Don't ever bring a deal from Florida to the partnership." <laughs> so, said I will just vote no based on its location, and I said why, and he said the most SEC violations per capita, and no yeah. one, <laughs> no one moved to Florida for a partner. So I think I think that the amount of critical mass that Safa was referring to is. Well, let's talk about what we just came from. Uh, we've been talking about China constantly too, and uh, and you're you're you know used to you think about the kind of uh, their innovation is done differently, but they're just throwing the kitchen sink and everything at it, and uh, you know, whether it's quantum fusion. You know, hundred billion into into some of these industries. Now we have space. So how do you see either maybe it's the U.S. but more broadly vis-a-vis what's happening in that these global, you know, there's silo blocks forms uh, are forming. And uh, how, how do you how do you see the U.S. and Silicon Valley's role in all that vis-a-vis China? I don't. I, I don't think we could do it on our own. I think we should do something like we did with the space station, or something like what uh, Europeans did uh, with uh, uh, the Boeing competitor. Uh, Airbus. Uh, I, I mean, I think what you're referring to is a real and emerging uh, global trend that not only we are now seeing again two superpowers in conflict, at conflict with each other, but technologically, China is going to throw a lot into that. Because I was in China in the past 20 years or so, and I saw how their approach was something that never do in the West, which is, let's build it and they'll come. And it worked for them. They built massive infrastructures. And I think for the 10 or 15 years I was watching China and going to China, Every year they would say, this is a year that China is going to collapse. You can't possibly go on like this. And they did. So I, I think it's going to be another one of those attempts thrown into technology, quantum, uh, into AI, into healthcare. And I don't think this is a, a battle that we at Silicon Valley or the U.S. can just win alone. I think it, it has to be a collaboration in, in the West as a whole. I think in some ways it's a competition, in some ways it's collaboration, in some ways it's none of the above, because 
I'm excited about innovation in Austin or in uh, Ohio, just as I am in Bangalore. And now I can't access China, so I don't really think about it much day to day. In San Jose, we try to access it for, for the pension plan. But from an innovation point of view, um, you know, I, I guess I would consider TikTok a bit of a cheat, but I still think I'm accurate in saying they have. there are no big global Chinese companies. There are big Chinese companies in China. Uh, one of the things that makes India interesting, because everyone's now, that's the flavor of the month, is that India does build, can build, and will build global companies because it, it's structurally different. Um, but, you know, if China's innovating, it's going to leak. I mean, it's not like companies in Silicon Valley aren't trying to copy TikTok in some way. Um, and I think we, I think where the geopolitical meets technology we have a decent framework in the U.S. It's unfortunate that both countries are inflaming tensions rhetorically. It's unnecessary. But CFIUS and, and some of the other things that we're doing, whether they're executed on well or not, that's a different issue. But we are trying to figure out which, uh, you know, which technologies we have to be careful about uh, and, and that have military applications. So there's a lot of things that I think are greenfield, openfield. And we'll, anyone who's innovating is going to make all the other innovators globally better. Questions? Well, uh, so my family's background is in real estate, and we've been aware of kind of the 10 year plus or minus cycle of kind of boom and bust and boom and bust, right? And in and, and, and Silicon Valley and, and, and tech, I think you've only been through a couple cycles of this so far, right? And so I, I guess my question around that is A, do you think that that's a natural cycle that, that, will, that will continue to happen? In this industry, and if so, uh, you know, is the doom and gloom over over kind of overstated? And actually, this is really a buying opportunity, right? Especially if you're able to apply strategies that can protect you. And, and so, I'm kind of just curious to hear your opinions on this. And can you can you draw from and take any uh, wisdom from other industries that have been around a lot longer? Wouldn't you say there, there was a bust in the 80s as well? There was a bust in the 80s, but 86, yeah, 86. before going public in 86. I, I think that I think there's a there's a natural cycle there. And in, and in Silicon Valley, we have lots of entrepreneurs and optimists. And all we all we entrepreneurs are optimists. We plan for the best. We don't even think about what might happen if, like I said, you know, you have the, the, the revenue curves going like this and the and your expense curves going like this. If the revenue curve turns down, you have red space in between there. Nobody, people don't plan for revenue turning levels are going down. Meanwhile, their expenses are, you hire somebody today, you're going to pay them for 10 years. So I think that because we're optimists, I think many companies tend to you know, overspend before they have the revenues, the, the, uh, the resources to, to actually deal with what happens if it doesn't quite plan, you know, that marketing projection you made that says, you know, we're going to win the world in two years. Doesn't quite pan out, and, and that leads to bust. Because if you know Oracle has trouble, then all the companies that feed into Oracle. Mm -hmm. Intel has trouble. All the companies that feed into it. So you wind up having you know kind of a, a spreading contagion, and I think that that doesn't doesn't help when we have credit crisis like we we had in the you know 2000 when you know everyone got afraid because too many companies if there was a huge bubble. Oracle was part of the bubble, but Oracle got clobbered anyway. Kind of thing. Uh, when we have credit crisis like we had in 2008, and we're just trying to pull out of now, I can't borrow money. It's you know, what's the best investment right now? Well, probably three month T bills. 
So why would you invest in a company that might lose it all tomorrow? So I can get 5% every three months until that, that stops. So T-bill, you know, the, the, the rising interest rates is causing a problem because companies can't expand the same way that they used to and it you know, fails some banks and a few other things. So I think that, I think it's a natural cycle due to optimism. Yes, you did, yeah, yeah. Um, as as an LP, what what are like the red flags around VCs that that you look at, and, and how do you do VC writing? Uh, my personal opinion is uh, smaller funds versus bigger funds. Uh, Second, <laughs> I, I, I know this performance yeah. track record. I think it would be hard for one of the name brand Sand Hill Roads. I won't name one, but I can think of several. They're just not going to provide. I mean, if you have a two or three billion dollar fund, you need a, and you're going to own fifteen percent of your company. You know, let's say you have you're just buying lottery tickets, right? And you own fifteen percent of each lottery ticket because you're in a syndicate with everyone. Fifteen might even be high. I mean, you have to generate. You have to have like a hundred billion in exits in some of these funds to give me a return that I'm happy with. And I just don't understand why more LPs don't do that math. Um, I mean, I love that innovation is funded. Uh, I don't want that to cease. Um, but I, I have a bias towards smaller funds. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is the CFA's background is not well suited to being able to evaluate most private asset classes. I think pattern matching and experiencing knowing something about operations is incredibly valuable. In fact, I'd say it's essential. Um, there are things like operational arbitrage that you need to know why is someone doing something in a way that's going to give them a competitive advantage you don't have to do that when you're evaluating public securities on those right so i think uh that skill set is important i think a team with a person i mean i wouldn't want to do this as a gp where i'm just only in one of those five themes because if i pick wrong i spend a decade of my life and it's not remunerative but as an lp i love you know, having my autonomy fund, having my blockchain fund, my computational, where the people have deep expertise. I've been a generalist my, my career, so, you know, full disclosure, but I think there's something to be said for that. Um, I think avoiding, for us as, as San Jose, uh, we, have, we, we won't do first-time managers. We don't have a staff that's skilled in that way, although we have an unbelievable staff and our performance over the past three years has been unbelievable, and, and I give them all the credit for it. This is not a skill set they have, so... Um, I think those qualitative things matter a lot. And then knowing what sector bets you want to make and then staying small, um, you know, on a team that's aligned with you, right? I mean, alignment, when asset, when firms become asset managers, I think you lose alignment with your LP, no matter what you're doing, whether it's real estate or hedge funds or venture. Come join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us.